Hey everybody, this is Tom Salami of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. No Chris Newmarker this week. He'll be back next week. We've got a great plan for you. This week I spoke with Sean Gilligan, formerly of Boston Scientific. Now he's the COO of AVS, which is a cool startup in intravascular lithotrispy, which of course is the area that uh, Shockwave had created, but now new companies are moving in to uh, provide alternative solutions to uh, calcified plaque in in the veins. So uh, Sean has an extensive background of interventional design at Boston Scientific. He's bringing that to AVS and uh, really uh, interesting technology and great take on medtech. So I'm sure you'll enjoy that conversation with Sean. Before we have that talk, though, I had the chance to speak with Steve Levine and Afra Shafquat of Desalt Systems. We talked about a new uh, digital playbook that is coming out with that Desalt Systems has collaborated on with the FDA, and it's going to uh, give guidance to medical device companies that are using digital simulation technologies and other digital tools in device development. I'll let Steve and Afra give the details and uh, really grateful to have their insights on this episode. They spoke about this uh, at Device Talks West. And uh, they actually had a presentation at Device Talks East as well, Device Talks Boston, rather. And uh, hopefully we'll have more conversations about them once the, about with them once the playbook is out. So uh, enjoy the insights from Steve and Afra. And then, of course, uh, the story of Sean Gilligan and AVS. By the way, uh, we have three more, no, two more episodes of Device Talks Tuesdays left. Got a great presentation by Aptics on Tuesday on coatings, and then we'll wrap up with a, a talk led by Resonetics. So go to devicetalks.com to register for the final two Device Talks Tuesdays of 2023. And then come 2024, I think I mentioned earlier that uh, registration for Device Talks Boston would open in December. It's actually going to uh, open up in January, early January. We've already got speakers up on the website, though. I'm building the agenda right now. Should be fantastic. Go to devicetalks.com to check out the uh, the speaker list for Device Talks Boston. But why, why don't you hold off? Hold off until January, but go there and register for your Device Talks Tuesdays. A little, little taste of Device Talks at a time is all you need during the holiday season. Of course, we'll have more podcasts for you coming out. We'll be rolling out episode two of... MedTech Women Talks, that's, of course, brought to you by our uh, our great managing editor, Kayleen Brown. And we'll have another episode of AI Meets LifeSci next week. And I'll be back once again next week with another Device Talks weekly podcast. We're, uh, just a heads up, we're not going to have any podcasts come out the week between the holidays. Uh, we'll take some time off to be with our families and hope you will enjoy that time as well. But we probably won't have any podcasts that week. All right. That is enough uh, Enough behind the scenes. Let's uh, begin my conversation with Steve Levine and Afra Shafquat of Dissolve Systems. All right, you ready for this? Ready. I'm here with Steve Levine. He's Senior Director of Virtual Human Modeling at Dassault Systems and Afra Shukwat. She is Senior Data Scientist at Dassault Systems. Welcome, both of you, to the podcast. 
Thanks for having us, Tom. Thank you. So we're going to talk about the In Silico Clinical Trial Playbook, which sounds really important, and it's something that uh, hasn't been on my radar, and I'm glad we're having this opportunity to give listeners a preview of what it is and what it means and, and what the impact might be on clinical trials going forward. Steve, take a moment, if you would, and just kind of introduce us to the In Silico Clinical Trial Playbook that's uh, coming out. It's co-written by the FDA. DeSoto Systems was part of that as well, and I know you collaborate with some doctors and researchers also. But what will the playbook sort of cover, and what does it mean for medical device companies? Yeah, thanks, Tom. I think for people to understand the playbook, the document is really the end product of a three-year, three-plus-year project that goes back uh, several years, actually discussions with directly with the FDA, in fact, with the director, Dr. Jeff Shuren, in regard to all of the work and progress that it has come from using these computational models, uh, what we like to call virtual twins, as uh, fully functional replications of human anatomy. Um, in this case, we're talking about the use of the heart. And Dr. Sherwin was really reflecting on the fact that they know that there's a lot of increase in use, but not a lot is really makes it to the FDA. And their concern was that there's a lot of knowledge and information that the sponsors, the medical device companies learn, but don't make it to the reviewers. And that slows down the review process. The idea that really became what we call the enrichment project that we document in the playbook is that the computational modeling of an entire trial would allow the reviewers to understand exactly what is going to happen in the trial before they actually run the trial and make things much more efficient. And so he challenged us to see if we could take our heart model, the model that actually was built in the Living Heart Project, and replicate an entire population. And that way, they could review the trial before the real trial. Hmm, interesting. Let's talk a bit about that methodology a bit more. How has that been used in the past? I know you, you presented at Device Talks West. You talked a bit about how your conversation actually immediately followed a conversation that I had had about the MitraClip. Mm-hmm. And I know you referenced that. How has this fit into clinical trials previously? And again, and you're probably repeating yourself, but I'm, it's, it's an area that I'm still learning a lot about. How will it impact the clinical trials going forward? And, and talk a bit about the methodology that goes into that. Yeah, absolutely. Because really, that's the you know the real breakthrough was working with not just the FDA, but we structured the project to include a clinical advisory council of doctors who were actually practicing uh, using these tools to ensure the medical relevance of what we were doing, a scientific advisory board, and an industry advisory board. So we had more than 70 people involved in this entire process, helping us to both define it and understand what it would take to do this in a credible way. And so it was very fortuitous that at Device Talks West, we followed the sort of 20-year look back on the history of the MitroClip, because for this trial, we actually chose to replicate the pivotal trial for the MitroClip, the COAP trial, Certainly one of the most important trials of the last decade, I think, in in cardiovascular. And part of the reason we did that was because it took so long for that device to come to market. And there are many other devices for the complex anatomy. The mitral valve is a very sophisticated part of the anatomy, and it's created this very high bar for clinical trials. And so there are more than two dozen different devices still been in trials for more than a decade yet to be approved. 
And so the hope was, could we facilitate that by bringing our understanding of, of anatomy through the living heart? Talk a bit about the living heart, if you would. It's, I think we've, we've talked about it previously on the podcast, but just a little more background on that. And Afra, I want to bring you in. I know AI is playing a huge role in all of this as well as it is with everything else, but would love to have you share your thoughts there. And I know you spoke at Device Talks West also on that topic, so it'd be great to bring some of that in. But little info on the living heart, Steve. Yeah, so the living heart was really where we started. So the living heart model is, again, what we call a virtual twin, a complete replication of the human heart, represents all the electrical conductivity and the physical response, the muscle tissue, the cardiomyocytes contracting, the blood flow conducting through it. And so you can actually replicate any patient, any disease, any population in principle with a digital copy, a virtual twin, a fully functional model. The question is, could we take that reference model that we've created through the Living Heart Project and reproduce the disease condition and the diversity of an entire population and virtually treat it and review the outcome? So could we take that basic model that's been developed and take it through the entire life cycle of a patient? And that, again, is where we, where we learned AI methodologies were incredibly valuable. Well, that's a great lead into you, Afra. Tell us a bit about the uh, implications of it that AA has had on what you've been doing and on the methodology. And, and I imagine that the, the changes are coming pretty fast going forward. Definitely. So as you can imagine, the pipeline that Steve is talking about, it's composed of an assembly of physics-based models that are capturing these properties of the, of the heart. And given a patient's measurements of their parameters, we are able to then model a virtual twin of their personalized heart using these physics-based models. But as you can imagine, because they use finite element modeling, these models are really expensive to produce data. And it can take over weeks and days to be able to produce any kind of data. What we have really done at Dassault System is to use AI machine learning models as well as generative AI technology, as in that of synthetic data, to accelerate the physics-based parameter model data that we have been producing using these physics-based models to generate synthetic virtual twins. So rather than having a single person and generating their data through this physics-based model iteration, you can actually accelerate that a patient population using synthetic data that learns the physics, um, physics-based parameter set uh, population and is able to understand the patterns within that data as well as increase the volume such that you're able to then quickly identify, given any patient, any new person's information about what are the measurements of their heart, to quickly identify in the synthetic population where they lie and be able to generate what their response is going to be in a very accelerated manner. Rather than waiting weeks, it takes hours to process much faster just to be able to generate their information. So we have basically using this, the, this is part of the encyclical clinical pipeline. This doesn't represent the entire pipeline. The entire pipeline is quite complex, as you can imagine. There's the part of simulation, the outcome of the treatment. There's the part of simulating how the heart would actually perform. So what we have really done is try to accelerate parts of this in silico pipeline using AI and machine learning technologies. 
And I understand you've also created models for other parts of the body as well, for I think the liver, the eye, and a few others. Is that right? So as I said, the Living Heart Project, which is now nearly 10 years old, was really a, a lighthouse project uh, to see if we brought together a multidisciplinary group of experts who really understood all the different elements of, in this case, cardiology, could we assemble a truly fully functioning virtual twin? And we were very successful with the heart. Uh, now it's been replicated. The heart itself has been published over a hundred, few hundred times. And we've taken that basic formula and replicated it to the brain. We're now doing the liver, the eye, et cetera, the lung. And so, you know, in principle, there's a lot of knowledge out there. And um, we're really excited. Offer touched on how we use machine learning in this particular case. What really struck me that we learned was that the industry is very much observational based. Medicine comes from a background of, of trial and error and observation. By what AI taught us is that being able to add everything we know about the fundamentals of how something works is a game changer. It really makes the observation far more reliable and more efficient. And I think that's a huge take home message that we really took away from this project. Fascinating. So just wrapping up on the, on the news that we're previewing, the In Silico Clinical Trial Playbook, what's the expectation of when that might come out and when it does come out and when it sort of has a broader adoption in the industry? What do you see that meaning for clinical trials and, and medical devices going forward? Well, very interesting. As many people will know, a few weeks ago now, the FDA released a final draft of it or a final version of its guidance on how to use these computational models in the regulatory process. So that's been a journey for the FDA that we've been alongside them, helping them understand how they could accept this in the industry. The playbook is a very advanced use of that guidance that will come out in a, in a peer-reviewed journal. Our goal is to make sure that it you know, upholds all the standards, uh, the scientific standards that the, the industry accepts and describes exactly how to use it, not just to model the device or a patient, but an entire population. Then that is incredibly revealing. And I think that will hopefully signal a change, a message back to the industry that we shouldn't accept the level of uncertainty that we have today in trials, that there's actually a better way to get 80, 90, maybe one day 100% success rate in clinical trials, which is our goal, Deso Systems and Metadata, to help companies get these treatments to patients as quickly as possible and as successfully as possible. And, and how available is the playbook going to be? Will people be able to find it easily enough? Is it something people need to, should they reach out to Dassault Systems and you can kind of hook them up with it? Where, where, will, it be, <laughs> yeah, uh, where will it be available? Yeah, great question. So it's fully drafted. It's been reviewed by all the internal folks. You know, as you know, from a, when you publish, first you have to go through the peer review process. So we'll be submitting it to a public journal, hopefully in the next few weeks, at which point, the draft, the preprint should be available on a preprint server so that we can people can familiarize themselves with it prior to its formal publication, which again, uh, subject to the peer review process, hopefully will happen sometime in the next few months. Okay, great. And folks can reach out to you, I assume, if they have any questions. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been, I've presented it, uh, my colleagues, my co-PIs from the FDA, we've presented on this topic several times publicly. So. We want to share the learning 
I can speak, I think, on behalf of certainly Dr. Sheeran and the FDA is the goal was not to get a publication out, but to change behavior. And so he's really encouraged us to be an agent on their behalf to help people produce better, more effective trials and better devices as well. Having these populations allow you to be more creative by testing your devices, more prototypes on virtual patients at a much lower cost. So hopefully we can get uh, better treatments out as well. All right. Well, uh, hopefully this will get that started also. So Afra and Steve, thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, Tom, for having us again. I once again thank Stephen Afra for the insights. Now let's uh, bring in the interview that I did with Sean Gilligan. Again, he is formerly of Boston Scientific, now the Chief Operating Officer at AVCS. Very cool company. Well, Sean Gilligan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Excited to hear about AVS and your move to the startup world after nearly 30 years at Boston Scientific. You're at 29 and change. You didn't want to hang around for a few more months to get the gold, whatever you get. Is it a gold implant of some kind or <laughs> maybe a watch? I'm not sure what it is these days. <laughs> but again, anxious to learn about AVS. It's, a, it's an exciting space, but wanted to first delve into your background and your path into medical devices. How, how did you get started in the medtech industry? Well, most of my career has been with uh, with Boston Scientific, almost thir- 30 years with Boston. But briefly, I joined Boston, actually, when Boston Scientific were setting up their first facility in Ireland way back in the 90s. So essentially, that was a startup. That's what attracted me there. And, you know, when I was there, I worked in operations, process development, R&D, a lot of the activities that, you know, as a startup, you would go through as part of the cycle to developing that footprint and over time, then I ended up setting up a program management function and leading that We're really with responsibility and oversight for a number of product development projects and then post-commercial activities. So that's how I kind of got into it. And then, you know, from a career evolution perspective, you know, the mid 2000s, I moved to Minnesota, which was and still is the headquarters for the cardiovascular division. And by being closer to the kind of decision hub in the business, really took on a much larger expanded portfolio and had responsibility for that. And Boston, quite a large, successful company with a multi-billion dollar uh, cardiovascular business. So that's kind of how I got into that space. So almost like a startup in its own right to a very large, large company as I left. But I think one of the things that kind of set me up for the, the role here at AVS was by being in a program management role, you really have the opportunity, but also the need to get knowledgeable in everybody's space because it takes a village of cross-functional specialties to actually bring a product to market and sustain it. So you learn a lot about everything uh, that it takes to run the business. So having done that for quite a, a period of time, it was kind of a next logical progression for me. So when the opportunity came up, I jumped at it. And it, the nice thing here is it's a product that fits neatly in the cardiovascular space as well. Did you have uh, prior to joining at uh, Boston Scientific or at the time, were medical devices or was the emerging medical device industry, was that a place that you had sought out and figured you'd end up or was it more happenstance? Actually, prior to, I mean, the medical device industry was was definitely starting to grow in Ireland at the time. Sure. And there was a lot, a lot of folks in investing in that space and companies were attracted to it too because it gave them access to the European Union. But prior to Boston, I actually worked for Oral B Laboratories for four years. So that was okay. kind of so that was kind of considered a lower classification med device space. So that was kind of got me a little peek in, and then yeah. I took a jump into something that was much much bigger and more established. So that was kind of 
kind of the path. But having looked back, I've enjoyed every minute of that experience and feel privileged to have met as many good and great people and that have been able to drive some transformational change across the cardiovascular space. So how many businesses, different businesses at Boston Scientific did you work with over the time in R&D? The main business that I supported was the interventional cardiology business. But there were different times where I did some work for the endo business, electrophysiology business, peripheral vascular business. So, but most of my time was in the cardiovascular business. The nice thing about healthcare is there's a lot of translation of knowledge and technologies across the different specialist areas. So how do you, as, a, as an engineer in a, in a big company like that, how, how do you continue to find challenges and, and to find opportunities and, and find new areas of interest? What's the, what's the secret to building a strong career at a company like Boston Scientific? I'd say a few things that I've kind of always kind of leaned on. I'm a big believer in understand where the business is trying to go and wrap your head around that and, and figure out how can you support that and, you know, leaning into spaces that, you know, where there's growth and opportunity. Keep looking forward, never look back. And be mindful that, you know, research is, is all about discovery. Things are happening every day of the week. Don't let new discoveries or challenges get, get you down or get, get you dissuaded. You've got to be optimistic and just keep moving forward. The nice thing about, you know, Boston, in any procedural space, there's a lot of devices used to d- deliver any effective treatment. The nice thing in Boston is the footprint grew large enough that there was opportunities to improve existing products, but there's also other un- unmet clinical needs that, you know, the company had the ability to put resources, people and money behind them to expand that portfolio and footprint to almost like own the procedure rather than owning a particular product. I've always enjoyed leaning into those areas that are sometimes wouldn't have been the areas people wanted to go with because they were particularly challenging. But if you lean into areas that are challenging and that doesn't throw you off, you just learn a ton. Did you have a calculus or, or a formula you used to kind of not apply to paper or in a computer, but maybe that you'd look at internally and assess opportunities to pursue this project or that? Or did you really kind of rely upon a a gut and kind of just a, that really gets me excited versus that gets me maybe a little less excited? You know, as my role evolved over time, I mean, a lot of people would play into any particular decision making because you want to make sure you're bringing everybody's point of view to the table. Mm. You're thinking about the clinical aspect, the needs, you know, the reimbursement pathway, the level of challenge in terms of the technology. Do you have the resource? Do you have the time? Do you have the people? It's really a multifactorial thing, but I've also been a big believer as you got to get close enough to the space that you know enough about it, that if people are leaning in a particular direction, but it doesn't feel right, you got to be able to ask the right questions. So, you know, just don't take the answer. You got to know enough to be able to ask intelligent questions and then, and then tease it out. And then once you make a decision, lean in and go, but never be afraid to unwind that decision if things go differently. Sometimes people have a hard time letting go of things, but sometimes you just got to let go and move on. Is it easier for an engineer and an R&D person now to get the access to the people they need to talk to, surgeons, whatnot, or get information to help inform designs than it had been? Or is it, is it harder? Because on one hand, you have technology that can connect you and get you to places. On the other hand, they're shutting down direct access to a lot of, I think, the key shareholders in, in medical devices. It's an interesting question that the field has definitely evolved over time. I was fortunate when I was in Boston, their footprint was so large and so sure. many so many procedures are supported by industry in, in many, many different ways. There's long history with the community to being able to get information. I would say that pathway is still available, but it's not as easy as it used to. And, and frankly, 
you know, a lot of physicians are contracted to hospitals now. Their day is full. Just getting right. time with people is because they just don't have as much control over their time as they used to. Conferences used to be a big area where you would have opportunities to engage with physicians, smaller, big companies. Not as many people are going to conferences anymore. So <laughs> the vehicles have changed. But you're right. It has gotten harder, but it's not, it's not impossible. And frankly, you know, healthcare is a partnership at the end of the day. You know, while the hospital systems and physicians deliver the care, we need them. Industry needs them, but they also need industry to support ongoing innovation in the, in the space to make procedures better, safer, faster, and more cost-effective. Interesting. Let's uh, talk about the move to the, I said AVS at the start, the name of the company is Amplitude Vascular Systems, but we'll say AVS going forward so as to not trip up our tongues. How did that opportunity become available to you? Or maybe even take me before that, were you at a point in your career when you kind of wanted to start, join a startup again, like you did with Boston Scientific almost 30 years ago? Or did this sort of just come in front of you and it seemed like a, a good opportunity for you to pursue? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. Being with Boston a long time, really good people, great teams. You know, I was kind of looking for a, a new new opportunity that would get me excited. And frankly, moving on also creates opportunities for other other people too. AVS, how it came my way, uh, a couple of people that were ex-Boston had kind of reached out to me, you know, over time, just casual conversation here and there. And, you know, I kept connection with them and, you know, and their, their early stage growth. And then probably every six, nine months or whatever. And then I got a phone call from one of my ex-Boston colleagues who said, hey, look, we've got an opportunity here. We're ready to go to the next stage in our business. You want to come out, take a peek. We'll show you everything we've got and we'll see where we go. And I, I did that and frankly met some of the team, which was very, very small at the time. Great people, right perspectives. Everything they showed me in terms of data looked really good. So I'm like, why not? So I, I thought, it's going from big experience in Boston to now going back to a true startup. So that was kind of scary and exciting all at the same time. But uh, knowing some of the people that were here and seeing the technology firsthand and the market opportunity that was being created by the current competition, I thought, why not give this a shot and go for it? So I made a decision to join and I didn't really look back. That's great. So, so I'm just always curious about that moment when folks decide this or that. You covered a little bit of it, but what finally tipped the scale to have you leave a position at a company that is one of the larger ones in, in medtech and, and provide some level of stability to roll the dice again? I, I'm always intrigued by the drive to create something new. It's an exciting process. Yeah. I, you know, the other part of it was too, like, you know, just people I've worked with, people who left over the years who were in the big roles and joined startups in their career, keeping connection with them and, you know, what was their experience? And uh, frankly, I didn't meet anybody who regretted it. And many of them said, look, many of them said to me, you know, you're at a point in your career. It's time to join a startup. It's time to join a startup <laughs> because you'll, uh, once you engage with that experience, you'll have a hard time looking back. And I've met many people since who have looked at it the same way. Maybe part of it, it's an infatuation to just getting back to your roots and, yeah. um, not having to deal with a lot of the organizational complexity that comes with a big business and getting back more product focused. But I'm a big believer of if you overthink things, you tend to talk yourself out of doing stuff. Yep. So, you know, when I made the decision, I talked to some of those people and they were they were like, yep, you're ready. You should just do it. I love that. I love that. All right, cool. Well, let's talk about AVS. What did you see in its technology that those days that you came to visit that intrigued you so much? And, and give us an introduction to what AVS does. Yep. Yeah, so 
a little bit of evolution on this space, maybe first, and then you'll see the context. But you know, sure. calcium is, calcium has always been difficult to treat in any vascular situation. It's very hard. The technologies that have been out there take time. They're complex in their own right. They just add more time to a procedure, and, and not every physician likes you know spending that amount of time and doing that. So Shockwave came to the market, and since they've come to the market, I mean, the story tells itself. There's been rapid adoption on the product and the technology. Obviously, it, it works, uh, which is priority number one, but also the big adoption of the product would suggest that in large part, physicians like the ease of use, the procedural outcomes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they're the only show in town right now that's commercially available uh, globally for what they're doing. AVS was born out of a an idea to do the same thing, just doing it in a, in a different way. And when I was joining the company, they had they showed me the you know the early generation product. They were in early first in human studies, so I saw some of that data and some of the preclinical data. And I was like, you know, in a market that this big with this much need, there's opportunity for competition. Just coming with a different technology. I personally am a big believer in competition in healthcare because I think there's no losers. It really fosters creativity and innovation uh, that benefits patients hospital systems when there is when there is competition and in this case the market's big enough there's plenty of room for competition that's always an interesting dynamic i mean you're right you have these these area creators that have the market to themselves and and you could see someone taking the opposite point of view like look they're there they're established they've got the approval you know how can we compete with that you know, I guess that would be one way to look at this. How does a, a company that's a second fast follower or a follower in this space, how do you look at that opportunity for you to come in and, and take a piece of that market that another company has helped to create? It's an interesting question. So there's definitely room for more than one company in space and physicians and healthcare providers also want to seek competition. Yeah. So whether that comes by doing a a better procedure, driving better procedural outcomes or, or cost, frankly, they, they ultimately want to see competition. So the physician community keeps things healthy because they want those dynamics to play out over time. I think from a product positioning perspective, you're right, when when one player gets a foot in the market and gets well established, how do you move the needle more in your in your favor? I think it's really it really comes down to what types of value creation can we create for our product versus potentially what your competitor do. Doing exactly the same thing. Um kind of usually, or not always, but sometimes ends up, if your only point of differentiation is price, that's not a good place to be. Mm, um, but I think we have some opportunities in our product where we can bring certain features and benefits to the market that their product can't do. But I think both products compete. There may be certain cases where physicians will choose to use our product over their product and, and vice versa. That will have to play out over time, obviously. And there are other things we can bring to our product that will play out as a future part of the portfolio. But we've got to have some value in our product that's different to the value proposition that they bring to the table to be able to, to make a dent. On the flip side, though, sometimes you do have benefits by becoming, you know, second versus first. You know, creating the market is a big undertaking in, in its own right. It comes with a lot of time, cost and effort. You know, establishing those norms, getting people used to that treatment as a, as a mainstream option. And frankly, the reimbursement pathways, they take a long period of time. Not, not a, some companies struggle, they'll get a product to market, but they can't get paid for it because the reimbursement's not there. Mm. So those are things that will play in our favor over time. So we lose some time on one part of it, but we gain some time on the other part of it. No, that's a great point. Well, let's talk about your approach and how it is different. So yours is, is pulse intravascular lithotripsy. Is that the technology? Is that how I should right. be what I should be calling yep. it? Yep. Tell us about pulse IVL. Yeah. So 
if you look at our technology and, and the current market leaders technology, both companies use a balloon catheter to cross the treatment zone. Okay. But how we deliver energy at that treatment site is, is very different. Where are we treating in the body? What are, what's the condition we're treating uh, and where is it? The product that's currently on the market is treating both peripheral arteries and coronary arteries. We just completed our first in human in a peripheral uh, vasculature and Shockwave started there as well. So that's what, what we're effectively trying to treat is, you know, moderate or severely calcified lesions in those vascular areas. So, you know, calcium building up over time just narrows down the vessel to the point where the lower extremities are just not getting as, as much blood flow as they need to, to stay healthy. Because it's calcium, it's just very hard to treat. It's hard, hard to open up the vessel. There are technologies that are out there, but they're more time consuming than what's currently available today. But unfortunately, you know, peripheral and coronary artery disease is very prevalent in modern society and population is aging. So the number of patients that are out there is quite substantial. So, okay, great. So we identified the condition. How, how does your pulse IVL system differ from Shockwaves technologically? Yeah. yeah. So in their system, they use electrical generators. So essentially to deliver energy, what they do is they pass high voltage across an electrode in the balloon part of the, of the catheter. And that creates a rapid expansion of the balloon and energy delivery to the treatment zone to create these micro cracks in the calcium, lets the vessel then be able to open up because you've reduced that stiffening component. So they're using an electrical generator. What we're doing is it's a mechanical approach. We're creating a rapid pulse on the fluid pathway that's in the catheter and the balloon. So the balloon is kind of rapidly vibrating in that particular area. So they're using an electrical stimulus, you know, that repeats on a particular interval. And we're using a mechanical stimulus to deliver the energy. So your the balloon is, is vibrating at a point that's the force that's breaking up the calcium? Yeah, that's what it's doing. And you, you want to create the micro cracks in the calcium because you don't want to be create big cracks because that could you know potentially cause vessel damage, but also you don't want to be breaking calcium downstream and having a, a dislodge. So ultimately, two different types of energy systems to deliver the same type of treatment hmm. effect. So what are the benefits to that approach, to your approach? I guess at a macro level, one, it's a different approach. And second of all, you know, it, it affords us some benefit, for example, because they have the electrodes in the balloon that occupies some space. So to make their product slightly bigger, we deliver the energy source outside the body. So that should afford us opportunity to potentially have a lower profile product over time. Lower profile means more access to getting into smaller spaces because to deliver treatment, you first have to get across wherever that restriction is. And sometimes That's those right. vessels are closed down quite narrowly. But then there's other things that from a physician and patient perspective, you want a really, really good outcome. From a hospital system, you want a really quick procedure in terms of getting out very good, easy use, those types of things. So there's nuances and features and benefits that we will address versus competition and vice versa. So you mentioned that you've had some first-in-human trials peripheral. Talk a bit about where you are with trials and what your timeline is going forward to hopefully get approval. So we just released our uh, first-in-human data at the big TCT conference just a, a couple of months ago. But in essence, this was a, a prospective single-arm multi-center study to evaluate the safety and performance of the AVS Pulse IVL system in moderate and severely calcified superficial femoral and popliteal arteries. So we enrolled nine patients in that, in that study, and we had both device and procedural success in real world patients with no major, um, no, no major adverse events. So that ticks the box that yes, the technology works 
And now we're focused on getting ready to submit an IDE so that we can run our pivotal trial. So next year, which is almost here, uh, <laughs> hard, hard to believe, but um, next year we'll be very focused on getting the IDE submitted to the FDA, getting approval to start up our trial and heavy focus on enrollment and follow-up in 24 with an eye towards approval for the peripheral system in 25. Also, the nice thing about our system is three quarters of the system effectively is leverageable from the peripheral device to the coronary device, the power generation part of the product, but we'll need a different catheter for uh, coronary. So as we get the peripheral program up and running for clinical, our focus will be uh, getting our early trials started on the coronary system late next year. And then launching and so on will really depend on number of patients, follow-ups, et cetera, yet to be determined and agreed with the FDA. And what does that sort of ramp up of, of your program look like for your company? Do you see yourself, I imagine it's a mixture of both maybe, but bringing in more engineers in-house to help with that growth, or do you reach out to more outside firms to help with those designs and to advance the product? I mean, things will look different uh, depending on what phase of our journey we're in, but we kind of consider it. Where we are in Boston is like the center of the enterprise. That's our core team. But our extended team are, is quite large through our supplier network, et cetera. We have very heavily tried to focus on not trying to do everything ourselves. If there is expertise, knowledge, and capacity through outside companies, then we should be leveraging that because that will get us a more robust solution to what we need to do and in a shorter amount of time. Yes, it costs some time and money, but you, you want to make sure you've got good partners. But you get there a lot quicker. We've been doing that. As time moves on, we'll have to reassess whether are those companies the right companies that will take us through the commercial phase. We have the right partners for what we're doing, but they'll need to be on the journey and the same have the same vision that we will in terms of you know investing in our product lines, driving the right types of process improvements, make sure to meet their quality objectives and, and, and costs. So that will look different as time moves on yet to be determined. But for where we are right now, we have what we need, both in terms of internal development and production capacity for what we're doing versus what our supplier network are doing. And what does the regulatory pathway look like? Another benefit would be, I suppose, if you could perhaps get a 510k, there's a predicate to your doing, or is your system so completely different that you've got a de novo pathway yourselves? No, we're so the pathway for the peripheral system will be a five ten K and the pathway for the coronary will be a will be a full PMA. But one of the things we've tried to do and team's done a good job here is, you know, we're gonna bring something new to the market, but we don't want it to be so burdensome in terms of training and support for the product. That's not always desirable and that's a big big hill to climb. So, you know, the footprint of the device is very, very small. It can be moved between labs. The pathway for doing the procedure for what's currently there will be largely the same. So the learning curve should be pretty quick. What does the footprint look like? Is it something, a, a cart on wheels? Is it a handheld device that people are carrying around? What is? Literally, yep. It's literally a system that sits on an IV pole. Okay. So that's going to be your design to be, have that available to a hospital and they can, or, or a cath lab, maybe an ASC, and they can wheel it into the appropriate rooms. Yeah, capital is always a uh, an interesting topic. Yeah, but if it's something that's mobile, then you don't need as many of them. If it's something that's big, it tends to be something that you kind of got to leave, and then that ties up the catalog for that type of activity. So that drives huge huge expense. So we're we're trying to think not just about the product, but we're trying to be smart about how we do it because um, expectations are very very high these days, especially when you show up. You got to be well dressed. <laughs> that's a great point. All right. Well, it sounds like an exciting technology. One will follow. And congratulations on your now. It's been several months since you've joined, but on your your new venture at the startup. Sean, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Tom. And uh, glad to meet. Hopefully we'll connect again in the future.
All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Once again, go to devicetalks.com to register for our final two episodes of Device Talks Tuesdays, brought to you by Aptix and Resonetics. Go check out the details. And uh, of course, subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network so you'll get future episodes of Device Talks Weekly, MedTech Women Talks, AI meets life sci for now. They're going to have their own channel and you can subscribe to that as well. You can also, by the way, find those uh, those stories on our Device Talks YouTube channel, which you should totally subscribe to because it'd be very cool to have more people subscribe to that. So go to YouTube, look for Device Talks and subscribe to our uh, our podcast, our, excuse me, our YouTube channel. And uh, we'll have a lot more videos coming your way from interviews and from other sources as well. Well, I think that's enough. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We will talk to you. Oh, wait, one more thing. Don't forget to follow us on uh, on LinkedIn. You can find Device Talks on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find Chris Newmarker as our Newmarker on LinkedIn. Love to uh, get tagged there. Please share this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast and our other podcasts on LinkedIn and make sure you tag all of us when you do so we can say woo and hurrah and, and good things like that and really, really, really build up that, uh, that performance of the LinkedIn post. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you again next week. 